The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders Teach Season 2, our mini-series on medical education. I'm Dr. Molly Hoyblind, joined by my co-host, Dr. Ira Krzyzanowskaya. On tonight's episode, we'll discuss teaching as a consultant with Drs. Babic and Fadke. Before we get started with that, Ira, will you remind the audience what we do on this show? Sure, Molly. We are the internal medicine podcast for all things medical education. We use expert interviews to bring you teaching pearls and practice-changing knowledge to inspire the next generation of medical educators. And we have a fantastic conversation with our guests, Jen and Varun, tonight. We cover how to teach as a consultant, the intricacies of when, what, who, and why you're teaching, and how to continue to refine your skills as a teacher-consultant. Dr. Varun Fadke is an infectious disease physician, clinician, educator, husband, and dad. He's a faculty member in the Division of ID at the Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, where he practices both general and transplant infectious diseases and serves as the Associate Fellowship Program Director. At work, he has the most fun teaching in the hospital and the classroom and enjoys thinking about cases that highlight the intersection of ID with immunology. And Dr. Jen Babic specializes in clinical infectious diseases with a focus on infections and immunocompromised hosts. She is the Infectious Diseases Fellowship Program Director at UCSF and frequently gives lectures on clinical ID for students, residents, fellows, and faculty. Her primary interests in medical education are developing best practices for effective teaching by consultants and curriculum development at the interface between internal medicine residency and subspecialty fellowship training. And a reminder that most episodes are available for free CME credit through VCU Health for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. So without further ado, further ado let's, let's get, get to it. To it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Babic and Dr. Fadke, thank you so much for joining us today. Do you mind if we call you Jen and Varun for this recording? Not at all. No, that's totally fine. Perfect. And let's start with some rapid fire questions just to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, Jen, could you start us off uh, with giving us a one liner to describe yourself? Yeah, well, well, thanks for giving an example. I was bummed that it, you wanted me to list my age. You don't have to, just an example. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you can say middle age. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I uh, So, okay, 49, uh, but definitely not yet 50 uh, year old uh, ID doctor who loves ID and med ed and plays a lot of sports with her two sons, uh, in particular, a lot of baseball. Wonderful. How old are your kids? Uh, they are 11 and 14. Um, so I am a 38-year-old ID clinician educator, uh, husband and dad to a f- near four-year-old. I'll say a writer of numerous unabashedly long attending attestations uh, who enjoys cooking, uh, which really means <laughs> eating, playing with Legos with my son, and traveling. Well, thank you both for that one-liner. I'm very excited to see what each of your kids get up to, uh, baseball and Legos. But for y'all and your interests on the side, maybe you could share a book, movie, show, or album that you've recently listened to or recently consumed and enjoyed. And maybe, uh, Varun, we'll start with you. Sure. So I'm a big fan of uh, murder mysteries in general. And one series that I recently got into 
uh, is called The Thursday Murder Club. And there's two books now in the series by Richard Osman. And I just finished uh, the one called The Man Who Died Twice, uh, which was fantastic. I love it. And Jen, uh, any for you? Well, I think I think I'm a little bit late to this, but I just started watching with my older son, Stranger Things. So we just watched the first season of that. Um, and it is definitely more terrifying than I uh, thought it would be. Um, but I do like kind of reliving the 1980s, because uh, as we established with my one liner, I was a uh, child during the uh, 1980s. Um, and the other thing about it that I find disturbing is watching all of the kids like blatantly lie to their parents over and over again. And that is very uncomfortable to watch that with my 14 year old me like, you're never going to do that, right? Like when I say I'm here for you, you can tell me anything. You'll just immediately tell me. <laughs> Have you had those conversations? Is that a... <laughs> no, I like said that to him during it. And he was like, mm hmm. <laughs> of course that's so. a nice transition to deal <laughs> yeah. with the disturbing or scary moments to just turn to your child and be like you're not going to do that right <laughs> so you don't watch anything scary great and um what's something that you've changed in your practice or your clinical teaching approach in the last few years or something that you're actively working on improving um and jen we can start with you yeah I, this is a maybe kind of more of a small thing but one of the things that sometimes i'll email articles to my team, uh, you know, at the end of the day. And one of the things that I've started to do that I probably should have done all along is to just actually summarize the article. So not just send them the article, but actually like send like a one sentence. This is what I want you to take from this article or, you know, a specific figure that they should look at just to recognize that they often don't have time to actually read the article. So just kind of a way of helping them kind of manage the literature, you know, in a way uh, when they're, you know, super busy. I like that practical teaching tip because I think I got a little overly enthusiastic with my longitudinal uh, third year student recently and was like when he first started out, I was sending him like two podcasts and three articles and one up-to-date article per session. Then I was like, I don't think he's looking at any of these. I got to back off a little. I'm glad that wasn't just me, Molly. I did the very similar thing. <laughs> and and Jen, if you can CC me on yours, I would love super appreciate <laughs> totally. that. And Varun, how about you? Uh, so one thing that I've started doing just in the last couple of years is is being really more intentional about seeking and giving peer feedback uh, on teaching. You know, I, I used to do that periodically before about maybe like a single lecture or a small group session that I read. But now even things like, you know, how how did I run that meeting or rounds that day teaching? And we'll talk about this a little bit later, too. But I think teaching is a skill like any other that gets better with deliberate practice. And the feedback that we get about our teaching doesn't always line up with the kind of feedback that you need to get better. So that's what I've been trying to do more intentionally recently. Well, that's a perfect transition to the next question, which is I wonder if you could share your favorite piece of advice, or maybe I can include feedback in this uh, scenario that you've received. And maybe Varun, you can go first and then Jen. Yeah, so I was reflecting on this question before our call today. And I, uh, one of my clinical teachers, when I was a fellow, uh, told me something when we were seeing a patient, uh, which is don't just do something, stand there. And it was in that moment, really, just to help me understand that you can, you can wait around to make a decision, you don't always have to do something on the day that you've been consulted. But I really took it to heart. And I think it applies in a lot of contexts, like, when you're facilitating a small group session and just 
standing there and being silent or even kind of big picture, just slowing down for a minute and, and saying no to something so that you have time to focus on what you're currently doing. Uh, so I, I think about that expression a lot. Varun, I really like that expression. I, I've heard something similar said in the time when actually the, the best recommendation is to actually just wait, right? And not even that you're delaying kind of making a decision, but that actually what you're recommending is to just wait and see what happens um, and not actually like intervene, you know, until you've given it another couple of days. And that can be really difficult, I think, in the inpatient environment when people want to do things more quickly sometimes. Yeah, especially on the day that you get a consult, there's this compulsion to do something. Uh, and that was a, a major learning opportunity for me. Yeah, I would say the the piece of advice that I that really, really sticks with me was actually kind of more around career advice, where um, it was a kind of a peer when I was a fellow, one of the other fellows in, in a different division, we were kind of talking about career trajectory and how to make decisions about what to do. And he said to kind of think about the type of job you want, but to help you think about that, think about who has a job that you want, like, who do you want to be like, rather than the kind of vague, where do you want to be in five years, but like, who specifically has a job that you like and that you want to do. And then you can think about what are the steps that I need to get there. And it just, it, it was much more concrete for me than what do you want to do in five years? Where do you want to be in 10 years? And that kind of really helped me think about kind of my pivot as a fellow from, you know, doing translational research to pivoting to a career in med ed. I love that. Because I think when you're starting out, it is hard to know sort of what options are out there and being able to look around and say, hey, that that person looks like they have a really fulfilling life. I like that. Um, Ira, do you have a pick of the week? Molly, yes, I do. Thank you for asking. So I think many of us know that Burning Man is coming up, and that's always a very bright and engaging and exciting experience. And something else exciting that I want to plug for everyone to read about is actually the role of psychedelic treatment in addiction medicine, which is a clinical interest of mine. And something that just hit my email, Twitter, social media, everything exploded today was a study uh, from JAMA Psychiatry, uh, a randomized trial on psilocybin, a psychedelic that was studied for the treatment of alcohol use disorder. And we all know that uh, less than, I think, 5% of patients with alcohol use disorder get treatment. So the fact that someone is studying this and looking at it and actually showed sustained effects for patients who were given two doses of psilocybin had reduction in drinking. Uh, and um, that actually, that effect sustained over and past the trial, past the treatment time. So something really interesting is happening with psilocybin and how it uh, affects the brain. So I just wanted to plug that uh, interesting article that just came out today um, for folks to read about and learn more about. Very cool. We just have to figure out how to get it for our patients legally. <laughs> so. I know, I know. Enroll everyone in NYU sponsored tri trials. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, in the vein of uh, substance use disorder, my pick of the week is going to be a Hulu show, Dope Sick. Um, it's uh, just a really powerfully done um, uh, miniseries, I guess. Maybe it's a real full show. I'm not exactly sure where the cutoff is. But um, basically, this show goes through kind of his his decline and his community's decline, and then the rise of the, the Sackler family that's making insane amounts of money in the pharmaceutical company in Purdue that's making insane amounts of money um, from opioid sales. And something I've read about before, but this is just really done in a very human way. So 
I would suggest watching Dope Sick on Hulu. I love that our picks of the week are substance use disorder focus. That's yes, there we go. Awesome, awesome. <laughs> we didn't plan that, Molly. I love it. Although maybe we should have done ID focused, but <laughs> I know, I know. Well, we can we can say addiction medicine is a consult service. So this there is just go. like priming folks yes, to get ready totally. to think about being a consultant teacher. Totally. <laughs> well, to prime them even more, let's jump into a case. Um, Micah is an early career ID attending who loves teaching learners in his outpatient clinic, and he wants to carry that forward on his inpatient weeks. He interacts with lots of learners, trainees, and faculty when they call consults, but he hasn't yet established best practices for teaching his own team or the primary team as a consultant. He gets a page from a new intern on the medicine service. Please call back Medicine 2B, consult for new endocarditis. So Mike is really enthusiastic to teach. He wants to teach everyone. How do you, Jen and Varun, or what do you, Jen and Varun, enjoy most about being a consultant as teacher? What do you see of the benefits of teaching your own team and or the primary team when working as a consultant in the hospital? And um, maybe, Varun, we could start with you. Sure. So I can start by sharing what I really enjoy about my teaching role as a consultant. So on ID, we you know are working with the same kind of range of learners that you all are on the primary teams on medicine, so students, residents, but also fellows. Uh, but we also get to work with learners outside of internal medicine, which is really cool, from the surgical specialties, the emergency department, ophthalmology, ENT, OBGYN, um, and then some some interprofessional team members who are, I think, unique to ID, like pharmacy trainees, learners in various places that ID docs like to visit, like the micro lab or the radiology reading room. And I think just interacting with learners with all of their kind of different perspectives about the same problem that you might be consulted on for all of that range of patients is both stimulating, but also is really fun as a teacher. Yeah, I can just briefly add to that. I One of the things that I really like about kind of teaching the primary team is that almost always when they're calling you, it's because they need help with something and, and something that as a consultant, occasionally you'll get a call of something that you might think is straightforward. But, you know, we always tell our fellows, like if the team's calling you, it's because they need help and they don't know. And it's it's very, you know, satisfying to be able to help another team kind of take a step forward in, in managing a patient, whether that be about a question about diagnostics or management, um, just kind of helping them learn something um, that they didn't know before. I love that because I think I personally have uh, come in consult or asking a consult and being like, please help. I am so worried and uh, you all have um, so much to share. And, and I also uh, recognize just how busy a consultant is um, in the hospital. And it feels like there's just never enough time to also teach all the pearls that you want to teach. And I wonder, besides time constraints, uh, maybe what are some of the challenges to teaching the primary team to getting those benefits that y'all just mentioned um, when you're the consultant. So I can, and maybe, Jen, do you want to go for or Varun? Yeah, either one. So it's not only, I think, the limited amount of time that we might have as, as consultants to teach. It's also that the time that we may want to teach doesn't overlap necessarily with the time that the people who we want to teach are available to receive the teaching. So, you know, if, if those surgical teams who are consulting us, they're often in the operating rooms when we're rounding in the afternoon. Uh, the primary internal medicine teams are getting the day's work done, having family meetings, meeting with patients at the bedside for counseling. And uh, sometimes it can be hard to track them down to deliver sort of the teaching pearls that you might have. 
So I think that's one common challenge. The other challenge I'll mention is that oftentimes we might not have a pre-existing relationship with the people on the team, right? That we, we may not know any of the learners on that team. And uh, especially if the consult question was not explored fully on the phone and there's lack of clarity about that and a conversation about that needs to happen, the focus of the, your interaction with the team may just be on making sure that you're advancing care that day rather than being able to to do any robust teaching. Yeah, I'll just amplify that that point that Varun just made. I think the lack of a longitudinal relationship with can be really challenging and sometimes you aren't even sure who the learner is, right? When they when they call, they may not identify their role on the team. So, uh, that that can be a challenge too in terms of knowing kind of how to level your teaching. Um and sometimes the interactions are really brief, right? They might be over the phone. Sometimes your interactions are over, you know, a text message or text page or something like that. And it can be, uh, it can be difficult to te- teach in that scenario. And you were both enthusiastic teachers. What are some ways that you've overcome these barriers? Um, are there certain times that are best to try to teach or certain settings that you found most successful in teaching? Jen, if you want to start us off. Yeah, sure. I, I think the, you know, there are a number of opportunities when you think about the consult interaction, you know, from, from the time that you get the consult. When you see the patient, you can go to the bedside together and we can talk about all these in in more detail, but you can review studies together. You can teach while giving recommendations. You can go to conferences for the team. So I, I think it's about thinking about what are the opportunities that you can find that can help you get around the challenge that Varun mentioned about being in different places at different times and not being on the same schedule and what are some times that you can find where there's kind of shared space for the teaching interaction? Yeah, I would totally agree, Jen. I think I've actually come to recognize the value of carving out time to go to internal medicine morning report or noon conference when I'm on service, which I previously didn't do regularly. It's not only a place where I can scope out incoming consults, but it's it's really cool to sort of provide input on patients that you're already following or that you're not following, but the team knows that you're on service, but, you know, doesn't want to, quote, bother your team with the question, but you happen to be right there. So it's just a a really fun way to de-stress residents from interacting with a consulting service. I agree. I love going to Morning Report. I love that because you're plugging, making sure as many kind of disciplines and subspecialties show up because I feel like when you're learning from the consultants in the room, it's amazing. And Varun, just like you mentioned, there's definitely times where uh, in morning reports, someone's like, oh, Varun is here. That's interesting. Let me just run this case by you real quick. (laughs) (laughs) Or you're like, I feel like this is coming in later. I feel like I'm going to get a page from Medicine 2B about this. And I wonder kind of when you're getting that page or when you're hearing the consult, how do you consider kind of who the learner is, you know, Jen, I meant, I heard you mentioning kind of leveling your teacher, your teaching to who's calling, but, um, or kind of, you know, follow up questions that you may have for them. And also just trying to think about what you're actually going to teach. How does that kind of process unfold for you? Um, and maybe Jen, you could start first. Yeah, I, I can kind of talk about how to, how to figure out who the learner is. I, I think a lot of times people will call and just, 
identify themselves by name, right? And not, you know, this is, you know, Jen calling from medicine, and you don't know if Jen is the attending or the resident or the student or the sub-I. And I learned this actually from a radiologist who I saw ask this question, and I like wrote it down because I was like, that's what I'm going to use to get to this. Because you never, you know, we, we used to say you always want to kind of ask who the, who, who the team member is and just always assume they're a level higher than you think they are so that you don't ask the resident if they're the med student. But um, I heard this radiologist ask, what member of the team are you? And I, I just love the way he said that. And it's just, it gets around the guessing and you can just ask, you know, what member of the team are you? What's your role? And then you kind of have a sense of um, at least, you know, what training level the resident, uh, the the learner is. And that doesn't necessarily translate to knowledge level, right? Because sometimes you have a student call and they know a lot about the topic. So it's not necessarily to say that you know what they know just because you know their role. But I, I really like that way of figuring out kind of the, who the team member is, because uh, sometimes you feel like you're in a little bit of a vacuum and you're not sure who's who's calling. Um, and that's helpful both just for patient care and for teaching, because sometimes there's something you want to clarify and you want to know you know, do you call back the same person or do you need to call the attending? You know, who who's the the member of the team that you need to get clinical information for and from and, and who are you teaching? And I think those are um, a little bit different. Jen, I love that strategy. I'm totally going to steal it because I think one one common pitfall about asking on the phone, even the innocuous question, um, you know, are you the intern or resident? You may be asking it from a totally good place. But the person receiving that question might perceive it as, oh, this person doesn't think I delivered the satisfactory information and now wants to talk to someone superior to me, which is not the intent of the question at all, but can be perceived that way. Nice touch on the intent versus impact, Varun. I uh, appreciate that. I also think it's it's really important to highlight like the phone conversation versus the the world of Epic and kind of um, EMR chats where... Uh, for example, I consult at the general where at the San Francisco General Hospital where there's a lot of epic chats and there's team chats and there's many people chatting you. And I think it's sometimes hard to know who's asking this question and and also how are they perceiving you asking like remind me are you the resident, the intern, the attending and just keeping it broad like you said Jen I think is really important and as you're kind of identifying the learner, I also wonder are you also starting to think about kind of what you're going to teach them or maybe What's coming up for you in terms of content that you may want to share um, and how you kind of decide what to reinforce? You know, maybe they're telling you like, oh, we already got blood cultures right before getting the um, give, having the patient get the antibiotics. Like, is that coming through your mind already? And maybe, Varun, I'll go to you first. Yeah, so definitely. I think what you could teach about definitely begins to cross your mind from the moment that you get the question. Uh, what I'll add actually to not to what Jen mentioned about teasing out the level of the learner is sort of the frame of mind of the learner when they're calling the console and when you anticipate calling them back with the recommendations. So if it's a surgical resident who's calling you after just scrubbing out of the OR, that person is not in a place to be able to ask answer a lot of questions um, and may not be in a place to spend a long time on the phone with you when you call them back. So your teaching for that individual may just be focused on making sure what kind of cultures should be sent when 
you do this sort of debridement operation. On the flip side, if your learner is calling early in the day, is you tease out that they're a more junior member of the team and they're going to be around in the afternoon, they're not someone who's leaving for the morning because they just worked a night shift, that person you can sort of tell them even up front, like, I would love to be able to chat with you more about our recs and even give you guys some pearls. What would be a good time for our team to meet up with your team this afternoon to talk about this case? That's sort of uh, to kind of give you some context about how you're even starting to think about what the context of your teaching is going to be when you meet the team later that day. Yeah, I just was going to add, I think, you know, one of the kind of frames that we're talking about is like, who who is the learner, right? Like, and we talked about kind of the, you know, are they in your field or not, trying to get a sense of their baseline level of knowledge base and level of interest in the topic. And I think that that the really important point that I want to make about that is not to assume that you know what others are interested in. Because I think all, all of us, right, we're all in internal medicine. We think that we're all interested in similar things. And then we sometimes assume that others who are not in internal medicine are maybe not as, as interested. And I think that that's a pitfall, right? Because there are, you know, I remember talking to a, a surgery intern and we were talking about antibiotic choice for a patient and I found myself starting to talk about the MICs and then I stopped and then she was like, yeah, yeah, tell me more about that. And I, you know, for a moment, I was kind of assuming that maybe she wouldn't want to know. And I, th- I remember that moment so much because it was really kind of illuminating for me that I was making an assumption of what she was interested in and that was incorrect. And so I really tried to stop myself from doing that and not assume that I know what other people are interested in and, ma- and just ask, like, do you want to hear more about why we're choosing this antibiotic, you know, and not just assume that they do or do not want to hear about it. And you mentioned a few different settings where teaching might occur. So say you have an intern on the phone and they're not super busy and they say, yeah, let's meet up this afternoon. How how might you like kind of how would you decide to take them to the bedside and review some things or go to the microbiology suite and review some things? How do you sort of think about that? Or if you get to those settings, how do you teach there? Yeah, so I can start by taking some of those settings on. So it really depends on the case. Uh, I think if you're seeing a patient where you're anticipating or you know that there are going to be physical findings that are relevant to your diagnostic or management approach, I think that's uh, a very obvious opportunity to snag members of the team uh, to take them to the bedside with your team and, and demonstrate the findings. Or even just to demonstrate the kind of exam that you would do on a patient with, in this particular case, it was endocarditis. What would you look for? How do you look for it? Because that's kind of a key part of our exam for that consult question and is not going to be familiar to many people. So that's, I think, one obvious opportunity taking learners to the bedside. Uh, the other place where I think uh, learners really enjoy sort of our unique perspective is when we either take them to the microbiology lab or we snap photos of what we saw in the microbiology lab and bring it back to the team and say, hey, this is what's growing. Take a look at this gram stain or, you know, picture of the plate. And I think that's really exciting for people to see and and puts a visual to that result that you read in the EMR that is very abstract. And and I think uh, excites the learners on the team about maybe going to the micro lab themselves later that day or later on in that case or for another case that they're seeing. So I think that's another 
a cool opportunity to kind of trigger a conversation about a specific uh, content area. Yeah, I really like going to radiology together with a team, you know, especially if you're trying to make a decision about whether a procedure is necessary. It can be really helpful for multiple teams to go together and, and talk um, all at the same time with the radiologist. It unites the team around, you know, common learning goals. And one of the really nice things is, is that it facilitates in-person interaction, which we, you know, there's data on on in-person interactions that they promote teaching more than um, just being on the phone. So I, I really love doing that. Pathology is another really good place to do that. You know, they have all those multi-headed scopes and multiple people can go at the same time and that can be really fun. Our micro lab is actually not on site um, anymore at UCSF Health, so we can't go together, but I love sending photos. Uh, as Varun mentioned, I think that's it's really great. And I mean, there's nothing kind of more exciting than a coxie spherule, to be honest, <laughs> which Varun, you may not have as many uh, of those in Atlanta, but um, what, what, you know, everybody gets really excited <laughs> by photos of spherules. Um, they're pretty neat. And, and it is really fun to send that to the team because that, you know, just reading spherule scene, while that is also exciting, it is, it's pretty cool for them to be able to see uh, the photos. I can tell you went into the right profession. You clearly love your job. (laughs) You saw Varun's eyes light up when I said the toxic material. I was going to say that reminded me of like a visit to the micro lab where they were like, come smell this culture. Does it smell like anything to you? And I'm like, you know, so like 10 days in, so tired. I like, I'm not sure what I'm smelling. I was like, yeah, maybe something fruity. And they're like, exactly. It's grapes. It's pseudomonas. And you're like, I don't even know where I came from, but I will never forget that interaction because I, mean, I don't even know if that was right, but I just remember that uh, that very specific moment, uh, almost as exciting as I think, Jen, you just got about the spherial. I am excited about the potential that one day I will see a spherial. Um. <laughs> I will send you some photos. <laughs> what, one thing I'll add to Jen's comment about the radiology suite is I definitely used to go down there as a trainee and I wouldn't even know what question to ask. I would say didn't I already thought I knew what what truth I was supposed to extract from this imaging study. It was really I learned a lot seeing my ID uh faculty and fellows when I was a resident really model for me how do you ask good questions of the radiologists of studies that have already been read to get even more information from them. So I think that can be also a helpful pearl for the primary team when you take them with you to radiology. And I think when you have, you know, trainees on your own team, you know, as kind of Varun was just mentioning when he was a resident, it's really good to teach like this is what we do. You know, as ID consultants, we go to radiology every day for the most part. And, you know, it's kind of this idea of teach what you do, systems-based practice, right? It's a lot of opportunities for teaching your own team, kind of the things that are part of being an ID consultant, like what are the things that we do? What is it What is it like to be an ID consultant? You have to like going to radiology every day because that's what we do. And we do really like it. It's really fun. And as Rune said, you learn all types of stuff from the radiologists that you didn't know before. Uh, it's, a, it's a great opportunity for everyone to learn together. It's also nice to have you role model the processes that you do. Like, why am I going to radiology? Why am I asking these questions? And kind of sharing that so that the learners around you can kind of clarify, just like you said, both from a career interest, Jen, of like, do I want to go into ID? But also, am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Am I understanding why I'm doing it? 
which I really appreciate. And um, speaking of kind of why we do things, Varun, you mentioned you love long attestations. And I wonder, uh, I would love to get y'all's point uh, or thoughts, Jen and Varun, about kind of teaching in the notes or teaching in the kind of attestation uh, specifically. And if that's like the setting that you prefer or kind of what you, why you do that, if you like to do that. Yeah, so I can start since I mentioned my my uh, predilection to write lengthy attestations. So, so I think the attestation can serve a lot of purposes. And I, I don't rely on the attestation as my primary teaching tool. I think one sort of major focus of mine when I craft an attestation is making sure that I can distill the case well so that other learners on my team primarily who are reading the note have an understanding of what I think are the salient features of the case and what is driving my decision making, even even if all of the other information that they've included in, in their note is vital to that distillation. I think it's often helpful for the consult team to know what the attendings sort of problem representation is. That's sort of my primary focus when I write the attestation because the recommendations usually are really nicely summarized by the person authoring the note. Jen, are you a n- attestation and drop a PMID and drop a you know particular article in there or what's your thought? Yeah, I, I think and actually Varun helped me kind of think about this concept of like, what is your goal of adding references in the note? Like, why might you do that? And I think there are two possible reasons to do it. One, I think, is to explain decision making in an unusual case. Um, and in that case, often, I'm actually writing it for the next ID team to explain why I'm doing it. Because a lot of times primary teams, you know, may not care so much about the reference for the obscure thing that you're talking about to explain why you want to do something. Um, and, and sometimes they do, but often I feel like I'm writing it more for the ID team that's going to see the patient again in a few weeks. And then I think the second reason might be to educate the primary team about something they didn't know. And there, I think you really have to think, do I really need to put in a reference or should I consider just emailing it to them instead, which I think is usually um, actually more productive. And then there, again, like we talked about earlier, you can just summarize for them uh, instead. I'll say that one place that I find myself adding kind of more references than I do in kind of regular consultation is when we're doing e-consults. Because in that situation, you don't have the opportunity usually to talk to someone. You're you're right. And I actually was just doing this today. I'm, I'm doing e-consults this week. And I wanted to put in a, I was putting in a reference about like a, a zero fast RPR or something like that. And and I put in the reference because I'm not going to be able to talk to them. I can't really gauge their interest. So you kind of have to go with your gut a little bit more as to, you know, what you might think they want to know, or maybe they would want to see it. And I found that actually if people follow up and say like, oh, thank you for putting that reference in the e-consult because I actually like looked it up because, you know, I was interested. So it's a little bit of a different interaction because you're not talking on the phone, you're not texting, you're not, you know, it's just like a, you're communicating, you know, by notes. So I found myself to be doing that more when I do e-consults than when I can interact with the team more easily. Yeah, I'm also not a big fan of including citations in my attestations. If you if you look at the literature about consultations, the little literature that exists, I think the general consensus is that 
they're not thought to have a lot of utility or importance as perceived by primary teams. I agree that the main reason I would include uh, Citation is, as as Jen said, kind of like a love letter to my future ID colleagues. Like, I wasn't totally making this up, guys. Here's <laughs> where I found it. And the other reason that I sometimes do it is if there's a very specific protocol in a in a reference that we are using that cannot be easily looked up somewhere else. And the example that commonly comes to my mind is desensitization for metronidazole allergy. <laughs> I don't know why that very specific example comes up, but there's a reference that has like a very detailed protocol in it that when that problem comes up, which is infrequently, we just cite that reference. Yeah, the other thing that I feel like I've done more in the last kind of few years than I used to do is actually including hyperlinks, um, which can be like really useful sometimes because I can link our UCSF guideline for X, Y, or Z, you know, or to IDSA guidelines or to our, you know, institutional allergy protocol or something that just makes it really easy if somebody wanted to. Um, they could they could easily just kind of click on it in the EMR and go right to it, which I think is really nice. Thank you. Those are great explanations. Um, you guys both seem like excellent teachers, and so I don't necessarily think this would be an issue for you. But I, I was thinking about your attending conferences, and we recently did an episode on kind of running a morning report. And there were some concerns from chiefs that kind of the specialist comes in and takes over and sort of overshares. Do you have any tips as being the specialty kind of consultant or guest at a morning report or at a new conference? I think uh, that that's such a great question. Um, I, I've gone to report for a long time and I, I used to be a, a residency site director and I would go like almost, you know, many times a week. And I think it's really important that for myself, I had to realize and, and really think about, and I, I would say to others is that it's not about you, right? Morning report is for the residents and it's for the residents to show their knowledge. So it is so important that like when a case is presented and you're like, oh, I know what this is. Like, you must not say what it is. <laughs> like, you must not say, have you thought about this obscure thing that you think it's probably going to be? Because then you just, the whole point is for the residents to get there. So I think trying to really not say very much until the chief resident asks you to say something or asks you a question, or you think like you have a really important teaching point to make, but, but it's not about you as the consultant getting the diagnosis, you know, early on. It's really about prioritizing the residents' thought process, their clinical reasoning process. And, you know, it's going to take residents often a little bit longer to get to a diagnosis than you as a specialist. So I think it's just really important to allow them that space to have that process without kind of jumping in. And sometimes I definitely feel like I might talk too much in report. And I, I like will text the chief resident after I'm like, I'm sorry, did I talk too much? You know, and I ask for feedback too, because sometimes like, I'm not sure, like, did I talk too much? They usually tell me I didn't, but they maybe just try not to hurt my feelings. But I, I do think you're right. Like it is important not to come as the subspecialist and just talk the whole time. Yeah, I'll add that one benefit of going to report on a more regular basis is that if you if you just drop in once in a while, then that has an incredible biasing effect on the attendees of the conference because, you know, they'll be like, oh, someone from ID is here. This is clearly going to be an ID case. So if you go on a more regular basis, they'll just say like, oh, that person shows up all the time. So, but I often actually will check in with the chief even before conference and just say, hey, if it happens to be an ID case, or even if it's not, 
is there something that you want me to provide input on specifically? And that may not even be the illness script of the weird infection that the case ended up being. It might just be, hey, Varun, can you share with us your approach to uh, lung cavities? And that might be all that I contribute to conference that day, even if I happen to figure out what the case is early on. Well, Jen, as a resident who listened to you uh, during my report, I'm just going to assuage your fears. You did not talk too much. Most of the time I was like, oh my gosh, Jen's about to drop a pearl. And it always come at like, you know, 8.15, 8.30. And I'd be like, all right, that's perfect. <laughs> uh, Molly, should we move on to part two? What do you think? I think so. Yeah. Well, so we return to Micah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. You go. You go. All right. Um, so, well, uh, we- <laughs> so Micah calls to return the page and the new intern sounds rushed and flustered on the phone saying, we have a 40-year-old man with endocarditis and we need your team's help. Then maybe pop question. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Let me start over. Um, okay. So we've got uh, Micah, our attending, who returns the page, and the new intern sounds rushed and flustered on the phone, saying, we have a 40-year-old man with endocarditis, and we need your team's help. So one thing that can be really valuable in terms of teaching as a consultant is kind of teaching management reasoning and teaching appropriate processes. This could be a podcast episode all on its own, but can you share key ingredients to asking an effective consult question and how do you kind of help the team ask the appropriate consult questions? I can start with that if you like, Jen. So yeah, I guess I'll start by saying or kind of talking through some reasons why this friction sometimes arises at the at the point of the consult question. So I think one is that there doesn't always have to be a well-formulated question. And I think that that seems to be like a, a focus of, of calling consults. But, you know, many consults that we get and that other subspecialists get are just mandates, right? Like every patient with staph aureus bacteremia needs an ID consult. So there's no there's no question there. It's just an it's just an automatic uh, consult. It might be that a consult is part of the routine management of a problem, right? So a patient is coming in with suspected GI bleeding, and you know maybe as the primary team that an endoscopy really is not in the picture right now. But you know, calling a GI consult is the appropriate thing to do for that patient. Um, and then many surgical subspecialties call for co-management. Just as a routine. So I think that's one reason why I think it's, it's important for us as subspecialists and consultants to realize that there doesn't always have to be a question. The second is that I think, uh, you know, asking a good question requires, is an acquired skill. And it requires a lot of me- medical knowledge, oftentimes, as well as knowledge of the patient. And the person calling the consult may not have enough of either for reasons that are totally out of their control, like it's an esoteric problem, or they just inherited the patient from night float, and they know nothing about, you know, the patient's history. And so being peppered with a lot of questions on the phone by the consultant is is not productive. And I think the third reason why this friction arises is because I think a lot of assumptions are often made by the person receiving the call based on their their own cognitive bandwidth, which often is a direct reflection of how much sleep they've had or how long their existing consult list is. Assumptions like, oh, this is a question that, you know, your team or another team should already be able to answer, right? Which is not a fair assumption. Um, or that this is a question to which there's no answer. So how am I going to answer it for you? 
Um, and I think both of those assumptions uh, actually require you to spend a lot more time with the patient and with the team clarifying what the question is before assuming that the consult question was was not accurately framed. So I think to extracting from those those causes of friction, I think the ingredients of a of a good consult question in my mind are urgency, like how quickly do you want us to answer the question or do you need us to answer the question? As concise a summary of the case as you can deliver in, you know, three to five lines. Being honest about whether your question is specific or vague. And I'm totally fine with you just telling me, we don't know what's going on and we need you, we need a second set of eyes to think about this case with us. And if there's any nuances that we won't be able to extract from the chart, like, hey, uh, we want this other team to do this, but it seems like they're not interested. And we need your help kind of adjudicating that. And I'll just add something else about, you know, we're we're often taught as consultants to quote unquote, clarify the consult question. And one of the things I tell my fellows, and this gets back to what you were saying earlier about intent versus impact. It is really difficult to say the question, what is your consult question? Or what is your question? Like, it's very difficult to say that phrase without sounding like irritated or passive aggressive. You know, I actually have our fellows in orientation try to say the question in a way that doesn't come across as like aggravated. And it's very, it's very hard. So, you know, I always try to kind of ask in a different way, like, let me make sure that we're going to answer the right, the right question. Let me rephrase what I think what we're looking at, or how can I make sure that I want to make sure we help you in the way that you need. And I try not to say like, so what is your question? Because it just, you can't say it in a way, you, like Varun said before, like you may mean it in the most innocuous way, but it's very difficult to say those words without seeming like you're annoyed. And you don't, that just sets up, you know, a bad uh, interaction with the with the learner and makes them feel like you're getting pushed back, even if it's not your intention. So I, I really like the way Varun kind of discussed the elements of the question and that sometimes it doesn't even need to be that specific of a question. Yeah, I really like that strategy, Jen, of kind of facilitating a conversation about what the question might be. And I often tell people that I'm rounding with that I start my recommendation conversation at the end of the day when I'm staffing patients with talking to the team and just asking them, hey, it, you know, our sense is that you want our help with figuring out these fevers, but you guys have already done a really good workup. What do you think the fevers might be from? Do you think that do you have a suspicion that they're infectious? Because we want to make sure that we've thought about the, the kinds of things that you are worried about. And almost getting them to, to share their pre-existing conception of what the solution to their own question might be before adding your thoughts about it. I see a lot of parallels with patient care when we ask patients, you know, what are you most worried about in this situation? Or have you? what do you think is going on? And they are like, perfectly giving you the differential and you're like, I, those are, there are things on your differential that weren't on mine. Like you are, you are perfect right now. Like it's just, it's also so helpful to know kind of what their worries and fears are. So you can kind of assuage those um, in your conversation. But since, you know, Jen, you were talking about kind of asking that, that question that I feel like there's no 
point on the jerk scale that you don't come across as one when you really ask that. But if there were to be a tension that arises potentially um, during kind of communication with teams or between teams, I wonder how you both manage any um, tensions or conflicts that come up, uh, especially when you're talking to the primary team. And uh, Jen, maybe we'll start with you and then go to Varun. Yeah, I think this is something that we commonly deal with in ID. And it's often framed as like, what do you do if the team's not following your recommendations, right? I think that's a common point where there could be conflict. And I I think the first thing is, you know, asking the team why, you know, there's often a really good reason why they don't want to do what you've recommended. And I think one of the key points is it's very critical to hear different perspectives and to not think that you are the holder of the only truth, right? And what I've kind of learned over time is that I think it's really important to be cognizant that you, as a consultant, don't know a lot about other what other people's expertise uh, may be. And that, you know, I just say that I personally don't understand a lot of the complexities that go into surgical or procedural decision making. And it's really important for me to ask, you know, why a surgeon might want to do a surgery that we think is indicated, but they don't think should be done. Um, and the second key point is that everyone is usually doing what they think is in the best interest of the patient and making sure that to kind of keep that at the center and understanding kind of the other perspective. So there's usually a very good reason um, why there are different opinions. And so just hearing those perspectives and kind of coming to you know, a, a consensus as to the best way forward. And it may not be a compromise because there's sometimes there's not a compromise between surgery and no surgery, right? There's not a place necessarily in the middle, but there is a plan to kind of manage that safely. Like, okay, we're not going to do surgery now because it's too risky. So what are we going to do to make sure we have a follow-up plan? Okay, we're going to image in two weeks. And if it's grown, then we'll reconsider, you know, something like like that. So I think remembering everyone's doing what's in the best interest of the patient staying humble and realizing there's a lot of other things that others are expert in that you may not be and kind of hearing all perspectives is kind of what I think are the main points. Yeah, I'll echo Jen's point about humility. Uh, I think uh, it's often really important to make sure that you're really clear yourself about the facts of the case, because I think sometimes a lot of conflict arises because of mistaken assumptions or chart lore and things like that. And you know, I've certainly been victim or perpetrator of mistaken assumptions for my team. You know, like we're writing, take the mesh out, take the mesh out, only to be taught, you know, days later by the surgical team that there is no mesh or the mesh has dissolved. Stop telling us to take out something that can't physically be removed or is not even present anymore. <laughs> so that's, that's one. Another is, remaining humble about our own knowledge, right? Like, even though we feel very strongly about a recommendation, we, we don't know everything about a disease process, or everything about a disease process may not even be known, just general knowledge. Uh, and then I'll put a plug in for a really nice article. Uh, the first author is uh, Charlie Ray, actually, at UCSF. It's called The Art of the Deal in the American Journal of Medicine. Um, it's about how to actually navigate conflict between consulting teams. Um, and it echoes a lot of what Jen mentioned about good communication. 
And I think with this good communication, you've really set up a, an open dialogue that um, the other teams can feel comfortable learning from you and you can feel comfortable learning from them. Um, we've talked about a lot of great pearls for teaching as a consultant. Are there any that you haven't mentioned that you think are important kind of in teaching before, during, or after a consult that you want to highlight? I guess one one last thing I'll add is sometimes it's uh, for fellows, especially it, it, in my feedback with fellows, I often ask them if they are starting to feel comfortable in their role as a teacher. And especially early fellows sometimes share that you know, they don't feel confident in their ID knowledge yet to have a teaching script about a specific content area. And I tell them that we teach more than just, you know, facts and schemas and scripts. A lot of the things that we're doing are also easily teachable. And Jen has mentioned a lot of them already, like teaching how to operate within a system. Like, how do we even get good records from other hospitals about which cultures were positive. Even that is a skill that is worth teaching. Um, you know, how do we disclose a diagnosis of HIV to a patient? That is something that the primary team can learn as well. So I try to make sure that the scope of our teaching is not limited to just medical knowledge about our subspecialty. It can be a range of things. I think that's a, a really great point, Varun. I used to tell my medicine teams when I was attending that I can't order anything, but I'm a very good chart reviewer and I have a lot of expertise at, at that and I can help you. And, you know, we, we have epics, right? So we have care everywhere. And there are a lot of like quirks to that, right? Like there are some places where the micros in the labs and some places in the documents and, you know, helping the, the fellows or the residents learn those tricks, I think can, can be really uh, helpful to advancing patient care. And I wonder, Jen and Varun, do you have any resources that y'all use or want to suggest um, for consultants who are interested in improving their teaching skills, how to do that? Maybe things that you've personally listened to, read, attended, contributed to via workshop or anything else that uh, you feel like would help you refine your skills for continual improvement? Yeah, I, I can um, start and I'll, I'll probably be kind of less on the technology end uh, than than Varun. But, um, you know, certainly at UCSF, we're really lucky. We have a lot of local kind of workshops within our institution. And so I would say that the first thing is looking like within your institution, are there workshops or lectures that are being done by kind of the educators in your community um, about clinical teaching? Um, a lot of the national societies now for, for subspecialties, it's certainly for hospital medicine, but, but many of the subspecialties now also have med ed sections or working groups that give talks at their national conferences. So ID Week has a big education presence now. And I'll just give a shout out to Brian Schwartz um, from UCSF, who I think has really done a lot nationally to move that forward. And then, you know, the Alliance for Academic Internal Medicine, which is kind of a, a collection of, you know, folks who do a lot of medical student and residency work within in, internal medicine. And then there's some subspecialty presence as well, often have really good workshops on teaching as well. So that's kind of more of the kind of in-person teaching. And I've attended a lot of those uh, workshops over time. Yeah, I would, I would totally agree with all of Jen's suggestions. I think workshops at all of those meetings have contributed a lot to my development as a teacher. I think just listening to other specialists and how they 
share their expertise at reports it has been valuable to me. Like, how do they even begin their discussion of a case? And that can be local or it can be, you know, like listening to a virtual morning report, um, as is, as happens multiple times a week, um, from your colleagues at UCSF. Um, the, the last thing I'll mention is, uh, and this is more of a pearl for consultant teachers is, um, for every block that you're on service, whether that's a week, two weeks, whatever your, your institution or practice does, just pick one skill to, to work on for that block because we're doing a lot and it's cognitive overload to try to work on teaching your team, teaching the primary team, teaching communication skills, just picking one of those things to try to get better at over a one or two week period is is more than enough to grow incrementally over time. I love that. It's like giving yourself micro goals. Like we all kind of talk about setting goals and expectations, but also for yourself as a consultant, like what is my micro goal for this timeline? That's wonderful. Although I am not the most tech savvy person on social media, I, there's a lot on Twitter, right? And, you know, in ID, for example, there's a medical education community of practice that puts out a lot of, you know, really key articles and um, lectures and, and teaching points and pearls um, from different educators. And that's within ID, but I think a lot of it is um, applicable to other specialties as well. And they, they do a really uh, wonderful job. Awesome. Well, thank you both. This has been such a great conversation. Do you have some take-home points that you want to make sure our listeners take away? Jen, we can start with you. Yeah, I think as a consultant, the, the main thing I would say is to think about finding your opportunities, you know, and thinking about whether it's, you know, going to the bedside or going to conference or finding the team in person um, and teaching um, or thinking about, as we talked about, going to to radiology together and teaching systems as practice. I think it's just thinking about all the different opportunities you have that are, are unique in the consultant role that are a little bit different than, you know, being a resident or you know, when you're medicine attending. Um, and I think that's sort of like a really fun part of the role. Yeah, and I will piggyback on that and say, I think one one unique perspective that consultants have is interacting with such a wide range of primary teams and having to do that sort of projection of, I wonder what this team thinks about this problem or that team thinks about that problem. And using that as as sort of, as a resource to enrich your teaching and, and share your pearls like, oh, on the surgical services, they think about the same problem in this way. Uh, maybe we all collectively should revise our scripts for how we think about this problem. And, and I think drawing on that experience is, is really powerful as a consultant. Wonderful. Thank you both. Anything that y'all would love to plug, you know, podcast, a paper you wrote, a tutorial, I don't know, a catchphrase. Maybe Jen, we'll start with you. Ooh, I'm not very good at plugging my own stuff, but um, I mean, I think I already put in a plug for the IDSA um, medical education community of practice. I think they do a lot of really great work. And as I mentioned, they're, they're on Twitter and they do a lot of great sessions at ID Week, and they have do a lot of faculty development, um, and I've learned a lot from them. Yeah, I will I will copy, Jen. Uh, so the ID Med- Medical Education Community of Practice, uh, I'm actually part of the Teaching and Learning Resources Work Group within that uh, community of practice, and 
we are have put together a lot of resources to help teachers specifically in ID, but really in any subspecialty build their teaching skills. And uh, we're actually hoping to roll out something called a meta digest in the coming uh, weeks, which would be uh, a monthly kind of summary of teaching vignettes and tools and collated resources on social media to help learners on uh, ID consult teams. Love a good digest. <laughs> and uh, we'll be excited to share this one on there if you feel like that's a, a good resource. Uh, well, Absolutely. thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your time. I think this has been so valuable. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, this was great. Thank you so much. Right. Well, that was an amazing conversation with Jen and Varun tonight. Um, I think they just really highlighted so many practical tips around teaching as a consultant. Um, a few things that I took away from it was just kind of their enthusiasm around teaching, I think is so valuable to share your passion with the learners. And that really helps keep them engaged and keep them interested. I think I, I love being a primary care doctor and I wouldn't want to change, but hearing them talk about just being able to interact with so many specialties and uh, different professions and get different perspectives kind of made me wish I had a little bit more of that role, because I, I think that just really highlighted for me how being in that situation can really help you grow as a teacher. Um, and so kind of being humble and getting that feedback from from your peers and coworkers, I think is key. What about you, Ira? Yeah, I totally agree, Molly. Their enthusiasm was infectious, and that was not a pun on nice, the fact that they're nice. ID doctors. But <laughs> I did appreciate like um, Jen's comments around you know, we always talk about assuming positive intent, but I think what I heard from her was saying assuming kind of curiosity and interest in topics when you're talking to somebody and just figuring out also kind of the context that Varun mentioned about the learner who's calling you. You know, are they in the OR? Do they just need you to tell them which cultures they need to get something kind of urgent and what is their bandwidth on the question? Or is it somebody who's calling you early and they have time to kind of get together to discuss the recommendations? And I'm just looking forward to applying this because I uh, do attend on the addiction medicine service at the general. And it's nice to be able to say, like, I'm going to assume curiosity and interest in all the topics when people call me and uh, not just, um, you know, not just assume that someone doesn't want to learn. So I'm excited to, to do that and apply their teaching. Love it. And we would love to hear from you listeners. If you want to join us on social media, we'd love to hear your take home points as well. So this has been another episode of our Curbsiders mini series, The Curbsiders Teach. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash teach. A special thanks to Dr. Matt Watto and Dr. Paul Williams for their support in this project, and to Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music. Thanks to Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio, and thanks to our social media team, Andrew Dillette on Instagram and John Ong on Twitter. And we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, review the show on Apple Podcasts, or contact us at thecurbsidersteach at gmail.com. And a reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. I'm Dr. Ira Krzyzanowska. Thank you so much for joining us today and letting us bring you a little nugget of medical edutainment. Until next time, I'm Dr. Molly Hoyblank.